Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Sunday evening? David, I'm laughing. You just made me laugh uh, off mic and I'm not going to tell anyone uh-huh. what started it, mm-hmm. but I think we have to have some secrets. We can't broadcast everything. We're podcasting, not broadcasting. There we go. And often odd casting. That's right. Know? But uh, yes, I, I had a good chuckle. So I'm still have I have that sort of glimmer of, of facial uh, glow and energy <laughs> that I, I didn't have prior to what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So there. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're in a good mood. I'm in a good mood as well. It's been a nonstop week of fatherhood. People tell you that fatherhood is. Parenthood, I should say, is, is difficult and relentless. And you nod your head and you say, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. It's not that I don't believe you. I've just never experienced it. So I've experienced it now, and I continue to experience it. It's a beautiful thing to watch, but it is physically exhausting. I've also started exercising again in my garage, so my legs feel like noodles. I started with a leg day, uh, so I'm squatting with my kettlebells, and I'm pleasantly exhausted. I'm in a nice semi-hypnagogic state, so this ought to be good. Excellent. Well, you've just triggered a thought straight up, not for this episode. I think it deserves its... I think... uh, but something that you've said is important there. I think that we need to maybe at some point have a, kind of a special episode, maybe something that's sort of outside the, you know, a bonus, a bonus episode about uh, the fatherhood experience and something that you you said there that just really, uh, it, it triggered something and it connects with some things that I've been reading both from people I know about the parenthood experience of people I don't know. So mm-hmm. uh, at some point we might, I don't know, we'll, we'll think about how to get that in there at some point. Excellent. I've written it down so it won't slip away. Perfect. Well, you have given me my five words of which I am going to choose two. Um, let me pull up my spreadsheet here, my words. You did very well last time. I was uh-huh. impressed. I. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, really neat. Yeah, last time it was obsequiously, and was it countermeasure was the other one that I did? Yes, yes, yes. Obsequiously and And both of those, for people listening, were really, really seamlessly laid in the groove. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen a welder who really knows what they're doing. There's no bubbles, there's no drips. It's just this beautiful, you know, melding of surfaces. And it was really appropriate. so yeah, I thought I thought that was fantastic, and it shows people that these exercises really do work. I'm very pleased. To, I'm starting to hear from people around the world about my textbook, which is out now, which features some of these these exercises. But David is really performing them in real time, and I think that is the crucial thing. You know, anyone can kind of rehearse and work on things, and this is too much of what education or school is about you know having the right answer and having time to study and no that's not what life is about Mm -hmm. it's about thinking on your feet it's about adjusting yourself to be more dynamically in tune with the world so it doesn't feel like you're pressured and up against the the clock yeah you know no be in the groove that's that's what's really going on so so well done thank you well i'm especially pleased about the uh the imaginative challenge, which is coming your way right now. Let's go. Let's um, because we always get David to be thinking and sometimes actually writing, which is what we're requiring this time, while we're having this discussion. So he needs this two-channel, sometimes three-channel thinking, uh, again, in real time. And he has not heard this challenge. And this is not in the textbook. I've cooked this up very specially. Uh, in terms of some recent uh, things that have come my way. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, 
anybody who is at all aware of the employment market today knows that a whole new generation of lingo has emerged in job descriptions and corporate mission statements and about us and our values and some of them have become so ridiculous it's hard for me to believe that even millennials are buying it but I came across one company and they appear to be successful they they employ what looks to be a very good group a good-looking group of diverse people mm -hmm. and I read their statements I read some of their job descriptions I read their philosophy and corporate values and I could not for the life of me tell you what business they're actually in, <laughs> yeah. what services they actually provide and certainly not the mechanisms of charging, how they actually make money. Mm -hmm. I know they're involved in something to do with startup businesses and entrepreneurship, and they have something they claim to offer some sort of platform. But I, I spent a good hour and 10 minutes with this website, and I have no idea mm -hmm. what they're on about. So, David, I'm giving you the name of a business, an imaginary business. It's called Utter. Not utter as in a cow, but U T T E R, utter, mm -hmm. to you know, make a statement. And you need to come up with either a short job description for one of their senior positions <laughs> or their corporate mission statement that you'd find very early on their web page. Right. And it must be completely impenetrable with jargon, but nonetheless, something that sounds as if it's written in English. Okay. Okay. All right. I think that it's a good, fun challenge. You can we we you started me off laughing, and I ex, I expect to wind up the episode having a good giggle about that. Sounds uh, good. Because I, like I think it. it is a real, uh, it's a real problem of our time. You know, it really is. And as people who love language and are trying to break through jargon and create psychic defense mechanisms of against ridiculous thinking, this will be a fun performance challenge mm -hmm. yes this will be a good one very challenging as well <laughs> I am very well equipped to write mission statements and back ad copy I've done it almost a hundred times so I do this sometimes for clients when they're getting ready to publish their book they'll say what do I put on the back cover and I will tell them, just give me a moment, and I'll be back in five minutes with your back end copy, and then it's there. But this has an interesting twist because it has to be bullshit. So exactly, should exactly. <laughs> you understand the format, but yes, it's it's a chance to take uh, a form and mm -hmm. uh, a vehicle of communications and completely distort it into utter nonsense, yeah. so to speak. I like it. I like it. Good. Well, we okay. we had a great pregame conversation that could have been a podcast in and of itself, really. But because of our conversation, you suggested that for this episode we move directly into our tool. And I'm sure that many of the things that we talked about 15, 20 minutes ago will find their way back into this conversation. But... I want to turn it over to you. Chris, what is the tool for today? Okay, well thank you. I, I, I think it's good to start with it and we can get through it quickly and let it resonate. Uh, it, it's again based on our mathematical models where we've been visiting some conceptual tools that are not language or concept or philosophically uh, driven, or at least don't originate that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But we talked last time about the, the notion of how do you measure the volume in a swimming pool, and then really intro the notion of quantity versus quality. Well, I want to get back to the notion of quantity, because I think we can take that a little bit for granted. Uh, we've disparaged the idea of linear cumulative thinking although it has its place. And I think here's a good example. I would suggest to you, and this is very, very possible now with computer tools and the internet and 
all of the resources available, that when we find words that have too many different definitions, mm -hmm. we have stretched them too thin. And that becomes a fundamental problem in that Gilbert Ryle's category sense of leading to inevitable confusion or utter, utter meaninglessness, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And here is a very good example. I'm working on this new book on memory. And one of the fundamental problems is the word memory, memories, to remember, all of the associative connections in that word field, they are used in so many different contexts, so many different ways, they can't possibly make any coherent sense overall. There's just too much going on. And I think that whenever you have a problem with a particular word or field of thinking that surrounds a word, do a little quick research and see how many different definitions. I wonder if there isn't some sort of inherent limitation to how many different ways a word can be used before it simply dissolves and loses all context and all possible meaning. Mm -hmm. So this is a good example of, I think, the power of quantitative thinking if we turn it into an analytical tool, you know? And as a contrast, think of the word love. Think how much work we have to do to specify the kind of love that we mean. Do we mean sexual love, romantic love, love for uh, an animal, mm -hmm. love for an occupation, love for a place, on and on and on. We have to do a hell of a lot of work to give that enough substance to communicate at all what, what we really mean. And I think we need to be very, very uh, precise, in a sense, mm -hmm. in looking at what how much freight can one word carry, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the real thing. So I think sometimes quantification is, is simplistic and in a kind of way of reducing and degrading a topic, but if you use it as a tool for analysis, I think sometimes it can shed some real clarity. I suggest many of the problems we have with the human study of memory simply connect to too many different definitions, not enough clarity of what we're actually talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's the tool. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been reading uh, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. I was telling you off mic about how reading science fiction has opened my eyes to the possibility of how cool writing can be and one of the coolest parts of the book is the fact that Wolf did extensive research into English words that are extremely underused. Uh, some are archaic, uh, some are a bit just out of fashion. There are different words for different geographical regions for things like military commanders. Uh, Instead of executioner, for example, they'll use uh, carnifex, which I thought was cool. Uh, yeah. But this idea of, especially considering the fact that we're both writers, the fact that words, there's so many of them. You've mentioned on the podcast before that there are millions of words that we could potentially use, and yet we only, if, if you're considered a wordy uh, uh, individual, we only tend to use, what, 8,000 of them per year yeah, or something like going that? going down quickly to 3,000 and, and, and really at street level, 800. It, it really is quite frightening. What I thought was so cool about this is this is the idea that words are sucked of their lifeblood. Words are eaten. And because I'm on such a sci-fi kick, I pictured this big computer system called the Lexophage which I think I have that nice. right, because it's lexicon and, you know, phage is for eating, if I remember correctly. I always remember that because of autophagy, the cellular practice of self-eating. Uh, but yeah, the idea of the, the lexophage is, uh, or lexivagus, lexivagus nature. I'm going to try to get almost insufferable with my vocabulary and attempt to talk in normal speech like a character in one of these Gene Wolfe books and 
Oh, I think that's a beautiful goal. And mix that I in with beautiful. slang, right? Create a patois almost of, you know, uh, generationally appropriate slang and humor and deeply simple terms and mix it in a gumbo of all of these poor neglected words that we just breeze right past in the, in the dictionary. I think that's fantastic. And some, there are some wonderful writers who would, you know, really get on board with it. Anthony Burgess, I think his creation of, of alien languages. And I love that idea, David. I think that's a, a fantastic way to, to heighten your, your cognitive abilities, if nothing else. But the, the fun aspect of that and, and being able to uh, it takes some control over language. I think, you know, we often think we use language and the, the problem is we're more likely to be used by it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the real truth for most people. And as I say in the textbook, the, the most fundamental way that all of us can regain a little bit more sovereignty in our day-to-day lives is becoming more alert to our language use and language at large. So, fantastic goal. I think that's, I love the, uh, I love the spirit of adventure and fun too there, you know? Yes, which is the major tip that I'm on right now, this spirit of adventure, the spirit of the performative uh, trickster type individual. I think that right now, if I surf the web and see how brutally unhappy and frustrated everybody is with their day-to-day twitterings and what have you, it seems to me that the path of ideological certitude uh, is ironically one that is devoid of principles first and foremost but is secondarily one that leads straight to madness and you gave me this great quote from Heraclitus that is uh, that the wis- uh, the wisdom of wisdom is the harmony of opposites I'll get that right one of these days but I think yeah. that there's a inelasticity of thought that is driving the average person completely insane right now. And my counter to that would be the idea of fun, right? Of, of, of finding the fun in, in words and actions again. Fun and profundity and uh, the largeness of of performance. So that's something that I wanted to throw out there as well. I feel that all of this is connected. I think that we are in a similar, you know, it's interesting. We both moved house. Uh, We both have been experiencing phenomenally oppressive wind lately that has been, I grew up in Oklahoma. I lived here for most of my life and we would get wind. I mean, there's even, it's even in the song, but (laughs) <laughs> I have never yes. in all my years of living here experienced the non-stop, you know, roof-ripping wind that's been going on. And we're also, connected or not, uh, beginning to come to a sort of comfortable understanding of how we're going to progress without progress. Well said. Well said. Yes. I think that's a very interesting uh, paradox situation, uh, and also uh, I think a very open-handed, fun way of embracing paradox and contradiction and opposites. opposites you know, um, because they're inherent in the whole program. And Heraclitus is an interesting uh, touchstone for me. I, I've, I've, you know, many great people over the years were, you know, amazingly influenced by his. You know, very, um, I mean, only a few fragments survive. He's considered kind of a, I mean, it's definitely, a, we, we know something about him. We know he was from Ephesus, Ephesus Asia Minor, which was part of the Persian Empire then. We know he's one of uh, what we call the pre-Socratic philosophers. 
But he stands on his own in terms of a peculiar orientation towards myth, um, mysticism, and at the same time, um, I wouldn't say non-scientific, but, but a real focus on some of the paradoxes built into language. You know, we think of him primarily for the, in the Greek phrase, pantare, everything flows. And his famous, you know, statement that no one can step in the same river twice. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, the first time you hear that, I, th I mean, I think we hear that as cultural uh, proverb, and long before we connect it with any individual and a discipline like philosophy in any form. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it sounds. We think, okay, get what that means. But on the other hand, that sounds so fluid. Uh, so dynamic as to make any kind of continuity and sanity impossible. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, I wish there were more uh, focus on that in our education systems because I think if, if, if children started asking those questions and if there were discussions about that rather than some of the issues that are now being foisted upon children, I think we might get some stronger minds. Mm -hmm. uh, because the question is, is, is change possible? Um, and what do we mean by that? And therefore, what does change mean in us, in our own bodies, in our own minds? How do things continue through time? Mm -hmm. How do they manage to rebuild? I mean, it's very mysterious, you know? Mm -hmm. It's very mysterious. It's a great example, I think, of where metaphysics, you know, which the materialist scientists have such a problem with, and now all our social uh, reformers have a great deal of problem with it, uh, where metaphysics grounds itself immediately in life that we experience ourselves every day. Mm. You know, are we the same person, mm -hmm. you know, as we were yesterday? And in what sense are we, and in what sense are we not? I mean, I don't know anything more practically grounded than that question, really. I can't imagine it, you know, and it, it, it touches on memory, it touches on cellular regeneration, mm -hmm. experience and connection with other people, and moves right up to our social and, you know, governmental institutions. Right. How do things survive in time? And do they have continuity? What's going on, you know? Right. So how does that tie in with your notion of a kind of performative enjoyment of life and a performative uh, engagement with life. Well, the first thing is that any, you know, are you the same person that you were yesterday? The only sane response to that is yes and no. I think that in that embracing of paradoxes, which you see propagated in many Buddhist texts, koans are notoriously famous for being essentially paradoxes that lead someone to a kind of enlightenment and if I were to take a stab in the dark at what that enlightenment entails it's uh, letting go of certainty it's having your your brain broken in such a way that much like a dam breaking new thoughts can rush in and new experience can rush it rush in unhindered by the baggage of language. But I think that it relates incredibly specifically to the performative space because the performative space is both embracing the yes of that question, meaning that you are still you. I'm still David. I look the same as I did yesterday. I don't look the same as I did 10 years ago, but I look the same as I did yesterday. Uh, I have the same continuing serialized narrative going on. My son's here, my wife's here. The house that we just started renting is still here. All of that is still a part of my life. However, it also embraces the no, which means that in the, the details of consistent generative becoming, I'm free to believe different things every day. I'm free to say things that could be and could quite rightly be perceived as being polar opposites. Uh, I think that there are some elements of a performative space that stick to the yes end of that 
continuation question, um, even with thoughts. So for example, if you catch me on any day, you're probably not going to hear me say things like, genocide is good. I'm probably not going to believe that. <laughs> However, when it comes to the, not necessarily, I don't like the word minutia there because I don't think that it, these aren't important things, but when it comes to the, um, you know, the sort of everyday feelings and thoughts and r- relationships, the constant um, interactive oscillation between different ideological pinpoints, those are completely free game because the, the name of the game is to, is to have fun, right? It's to take all these hard and fast rules that are on the yes side and make them squishy and turn them into no, basically, to, to constantly be uh, engaging in an alchemical process of you know, the transmutation of, of, of the you into something that is a bit more malleable and, and interesting, right? I hope that wasn't too jargon heavy, but I had fun saying it. No, <laughs> you know, I, I, no, look, I think there, I mean, that's an interesting question about jargon. When is jargon jargon and when is language inherently, you know, complex because of the nature of, of what one is trying true. to say. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I think the word malleable is really important here because that often has a connotation of uh, a negative connotation, which yes. I think is quite remarkable. Right, which um, is why I like it. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I do too. I think oscillation is, is an interesting idea. I mean, Jung, you know, who was all about uh, the embrace and reconciliation of opposites and how things become their opposites and about how one needs to retain a psychological flexibility. And he was, of course, tremendously interested in alchemy. So those ideas all work together. Uh, and you think of Whitman, you know, I am, I'm large, I contain multitudes. There seems to be something about flexibility, malleability there that's very important. And I think an interesting counterpoint, and there's another a lovely word and concept in terms of opposites and oppositions and... Uh, you know, perhaps some sort of combat or reconciliation between two different things. If we go back to Gregory Bateson, who we mentioned early in the podcast, remarkable mind. He he had a, a such a great career being able to work across so many different fields, from you know hardcore field anthropology in New Guinea. He was Margaret Mead's husband for a while. He worked with alcoholics and schizophrenics. He worked with animals and paralinguistic, non-human communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he gave us the, the, the concept of the double bind. And he made an argument that I think is almost, was, was so poignant at the time, it, we're still coming to terms with it. But this was well before uh, the whole psychiatric obsession with medication. And when, when people were actually looking for social, as in talking therapy, family therapy, he was very big uh, on, on family therapy, particularly in the case of severe mental illness, as in schizophrenia. And his, the double-bind argument is that oftentimes, and he's not dismissing other causes, uh, genetic, individual, neurochemical problems, he's not dismissing that. But he did see, particularly in his family therapy uh, situations, and in a real, you know, from a clinician point of view, that many times individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia were really trying to reconcile radically opposed propositions given to them by their family, mm. most often their parents, but not always. Wow, okay. And, and the schism of mind, schism was another key word that we featured early in, in the podcast, and I think it kind of uh, connects throughout all of our episodes, because we're talking about oscillation and reconciliation, <coughs> radically opposed, apparently opposed ideas. Uh, that's always worth interrogating. Maybe things that are, appear to be opposites are not. I think that's often the case. But it's interesting to look at how Heraclitus through Jung, through people like Whitman and these wonderfully expansive, well, William James, there's so many, uh, who 
managed to incorporate some really wild vortices of, of potential opposites up against the hard, rigid, deeply uh, schismatic examples that Bateson cites in his clinical practice about what, what led people to schizophrenia. So it's not so much the, the idea of opposites. It seems to be the lack of a rope bridge or a trapeze or some mechanism of flexibility between yeah, those exactly. things. That's it. That's it. It's the it's not that there are opposites. It's that these people don't have a framework in which those opposites can coexist peacefully and work together as a team. So, you know, two things that are I'm thinking of a lot of performative I'm thinking of drag actually which at its best was is this meeting of opposites right man and woman it's this perfect performative space where the drag queens become neither male nor female but some kind of third gender right and the the opposites of male and female in somebody who has been potentially raised to believe that these are concrete you know sort of cemented uh, opposites might watch a drag show and throw up they might be so thrown by the queerness of it that they can't enjoy the temporary autonomous zone of the drag show but to people who are a little bit looser and a little bit more open to to fun and camp and kitsch and all of these things that I think drag embodies so well, uh, going to a drag show can be a really fun time where it's, you know, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not gay, but that dress looks really nice, that kind of thing. Well, I think that's a very, very interesting example because there are a couple of things going on there that in, in, a, in a, a history of theater sense, uh, I think that drag shows and burlesque form a very, very interesting stream of entertainment because they have always been addressed to a very popular audience, mm. so they're not in that highbrow realm. But they always have had an ironic comment on the, on the distance between theater and, and real life, so to yeah, speak, right. if we even believe that idea. And I think that's a really interesting, you know, element there that where people might have a problem uh, with drag is not so much even on the gender, obvious sort of sex element, it's on the question of the boundaries between theater and real life, between circus and real life. And I have two other thoughts. I was just talking to a friend who had some experience at, you know, it was a, it was kind of a, Wild West sort of tourist town uh, in uh, in the Rocky Mountains, and uh, there was an ongoing melodrama, you know, uh, as a as a theatrical performance, and the feeling was what a wonderful. I mean, they're kind of absurd. I mean, if you, uh, the last real melodrama I saw, other than you know some silent movies, was some stuff that we were shown as kids, but it's a beautiful crude, basic, uh, you know, completely inclusive form of theater and engagement. And I would much rather see an explicit melodrama in an old Wild West and, and mustachioed villain sort of sense than a, a unintentionally melodramatic movie on Amazon Prime. Uh, but also one thing, I don't know if people have um, touched base or have read recently, um, Susan Sontag's absolutely wonderful essay, Notes on Camp, which I, I think the world of her writing, I, I'm not always sure of her whole political arc and everything, but that, that's not important to me. I think as a writer and a thinker, uh, she was very, very interesting. And Notes on Camp is a very sort of, uh, well, it's very short, it's immensely readable, and it works even if you don't understand all her references. She was very well read. <laughs> but the form itself, 
the way she completely deconstructs the essay, it's essentially bullet points, but it's a beautiful performance of what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a fabulous thing to touch base with. And I, I've taught it many times, and I, I have to say, students who are first completely puzzled, they get fewer and fewer of her references because they just, cultural knowledge is just weakening and dying. But nonetheless, they, her form performs what she's talking about, and they ease closer to it. And I think that's a kind of interesting way to, to get people. Th that's the fun of burlesque and melodrama. Mm -hmm. And some of, you know, the circus, the carnival. For God's sake, you know, E. Cummings and damn everything with the circus, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And which I think is a beautiful, you know? It's, uh, have, some, have some fun with these great ancient entertainment forms. Right. You know? It, somehow when we got high art, uh, I mean, I don't know where that came from. It certainly didn't come from the artists themselves, no. because you know that's not what they were thinking about. <laughs> they were they were trying to uh, to reach people and to get an imaginative space of connection, a sacred space yes. of engagement Ooh. and shared experience. Ooh, I like that word, sacred. That's going to be added to the soup in my brain right now, and I'm going to let that. Uh, get a little fermented before I pull that one back out. But I think that the connection between the sacred space and one of play and performance is not what people would immediately assume. So that, in a sense, is a performance of what we're talking about. You think of sacred as being highly ritualized, um, very precise, that's what I think of when I think of sacred. I think of things that are kept away, relics, things of that nature. But what you're suggesting is that the, the sacred space, which comes from the idea of sacrifice, something is being sacrificed in these melodramatic, uh, fun camp performances. And that thing that's being what, is, what do you think that thing is that's being sacrificed? What makes that space sacred? Well, as I, I like to say, make a mistake with the sacred and you get scared, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just change the letters yeah. around. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that what happens is that, uh, and, and where the, I think the dividing point is between what we would call indigenous people's traditional smaller scale tribal societies notion of sacred and ours in a western developed nation or larger developed nation point of view is that anything sacred is curated it's managed by some sort of <clears throat> priest caste mm -hmm. and and somehow we lost that shamanistic possibility of someone inhabiting a role as in playing a character as in having many different masks. Uh, I mean, I was really surprised. One of the most moving, it was a fire ceremony on the island of New Britain in New Guinea. And they take that stuff very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one would look at that and go, well, that's not something they're doing for the tourists. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's completely degraded and lost all meaning. And, and I'm not going to, I'm going to be above that because it's, it's really been de hopelessly deconstructed. No, no, it's pretty much what it was happening 2000 years ago and give them credit for maintaining cultural integrity. Um, but one of the, the key shamanistic figures in this absolute, you know, they take body art and design and masks and poetry and performance so beautifully, seriously, and yet joyously. But it was, it was, it, the whole thing ran the gamut of being scary mm -hmm. and dreamlike and lusty and hopeful. And I mean, it was the entire <laughs> performance of their cultural psychology. And the, key shamanistic figure I knew to be the local fire chief 
you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. He didn't wear that costume, that persona, that sacred presence all the time. Sure. Because that's too much weight to carry. That's too much magic mm-hmm. to walk around, you know? And he had to do the mechanics on the one fire truck they had, you know? Mm-hmm. It's So I don't yeah. know if that answers your question, but I think that part of the notion of sacred space is a fundamental connection that is not an opposition Mm -hmm. and that Western science has finally sort of really, or only pretty recently started to embrace, is that space and time are one, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You can't Mm -hmm. have space without time. Mm -hmm. So there's sacred time as well as space. What's interesting to me about the fire chief, I had the image of the game of hot potato and that led me to the thought that the sacred is like a hot potato that you can't hold for too long. You have to pass it off to somebody else or it'll burn your hands. And if life in general is this acceptance of but also battle against entropy via the mechanism of, of movement, right, against stagnation, then the sacred and the performative is enacting that kind of primal scream against but also toward death and the end and decay and all those kind of things that you can't ever stand still in life you simply cannot you have to be moving if you lay in bed all day your muscles will atrophy if you keep one thought you'll become like one of these uh, people online who have somehow reconciled in their head that Stalin was a good guy or something like that. If you don't stay light on your feet, you'll get thrown into a river with concrete blocks on your shoes, mafia style, and that's where you'll be for all of eternity. So this is really unlocking something cool in my brain. But movement, right? Passing it along not being possessed by the spirit too long, written just long enough to say what needs to be said. I love that analogy, you know, a a great sort of, uh, and, and, you know, very uh, widely understood game, childhood game of hot potato. I think that's a really uh, beautiful metaphoric frame, which... You know, it's it's exactly analogous to Heraclitus's idea of the river, keep mm-hmm. it moving, panta ray, everything flows. But it, it's 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 down to earth in the way that we've talked about burlesque and melodrama and childhood games. Everyone understands hot potato. You know, mm-hmm. it's really like, I mean, and it works on on two levels. Works on the practical, you know, level of like, oh shit, I don't want to burn my hands, you know. But it's also about keep it moving, you know. Mm-hmm. And keep it moving in that game sense. Keep it moving in a conversational sense. Keep it moving in a dance sense. Keep it moving in a relationship sense. You know, it's... And it's not flying a bottle, goldfish, no memory sort of thing. It's, it's not about that at all. It might be the, the key to, to much greater alertness, you know? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that is the possibility. I, one of the things that... I spent, you know, really, really emphasize in the textbook and in my classes is, is uh, the listening memory method, which is where I'll, I'll, I'll you know, put forward a few lines mm-hmm. in real time that no one's heard before. They have to repeat as best they can. And of course, it gets easier as you've heard it a few more times. But that attunes people's thinking. But another one is a basic quick think exercise. Quick, what's something green? Quick, what's a word beginning with I? Mm-hmm. And you have to listen to other people's answers because you can't repeat. Mm. You can't repeat, and you got to move faster and faster. And that's, of course, a great language teaching mechanism, which, you know, the Berlitz School, the Rossius School that I trained at, uh, the CIA, you know, all mm-hmm. of the military programs around the world that are teaching other languages. Quick drill, quick drill, quick drill. Stay alert, stay alert. I'm going to do that with Gus and when he can speak. That is such a cool idea. Tell me a word that starts with it's I. It's so fun. Tell me it's something so green. It's so fun. Yeah. What a you cool know, and, 
uh, what, what a cool tool and, and practice that is. Well, I'm glad you think so, because I, I have found even the most reticent, introverted students, that is a key to breaking them down. And if you start off, as sort of Gus already, I think, is, you know, he's just going to dig it. And, and then that's a tool that just, you know, with exponential returns, you know? Right, right, because it's a great vocabulary booster for starters, but it also is a, a practice of being able to think on your feet. He'll never know when dad's going to come in and tell him, you know, tell me who the 20th president was. Tell me something that begins with I. I guess the president one's a little bit different because it's less of a game, but I just, I love this idea of, you know, not in a, not in a uh, kind of taskmaster, um, evil, overbearing way, right? Like there's no punishment if you don't know. But you never know when Dad's gonna want to play the word game, when you have to be ready for it. And yes. and I'm gonna have a list too because I'm gonna remember words that he used the time before. And I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna be mentally checking, and it won't be perfect because my memory is far from perfect. But boy, if I hear you say iguana again, you lose. So. Yeah, you, and, and that is one of the things that, that we do tend to notice when people use certain words repeatedly. This mm-hmm. is that quantification thing, you know. So that is one of the ways our memory works. But that's a beautiful example of interactivity, of, of a game that you're playing together and building. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a creative process of building up references and, and connections and sharpening, you know, sharpening speed of mind. Yeah. And I mean, for a funny way of thinking, I, you know, if I haven't watched the Pink Panther movie series, but I did like Peter Sellers at one time. But people may remember that um, as Inspector Clouseau, uh, he trains his uh, his butler uh, to attack him at any, you know, in surprise <laughs> terms. And of course, it leads to hilarious slapstick. Uh, right. Um, but slapstick is another beautiful uh, yeah. physical form of performance right. theater that is worth thinking about, mm-hmm. how that works. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. So, well, do you want to hear my jargon? I think we are ready. I'm, I'm really quite hanging out for this because this is something I think, if people can, can work with nonsense, and I don't know a better way of, of discovering what a, a clearer sense of what sense and coherence means. I think nonsense is a beautiful teacher. So lay it on us. All right. We here at Utter believe in the power of resonant equity. Diversity has been a problem of the blockchain that we aim to integrate into our vertical with a seamless connection between indigenous cooperation and autonomous stewardship. As we move into the future, Our goals will move the needle at scale to reduce ideological churn at the core level of our team. Over time, Utter will move the goalpost to empower our user base to engage in win-win, calling-in sit-downs to address privilege and build a no-risk future full of engagement and empathy. I am in awe. (laughs) I, I... I think you've got to really post that so that we, that everyone gets to read that and remember that. I think that was just a beautiful performance in real time. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It's just, there's so many, I mean, oh dear, H.L. Mencken, Jonathan Swift, many people would just really, really applaud that, and I'm one of them. I think that was absolutely uh, a trem- uh, just a full-scale... Uh, Eagle Scout return on on that imaginative challenge. Just awesome. lovely. Cool. Lovely. Cool. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, that, that makes me very happy to hear because uh, it was fun to... I was sitting here racking my brain listening to you and, you know, I've got to throw the ball back. I can't turn that part of the brain off. But I was sitting there racking my brain. What the... What, what else do these people say? And the, the, the blockchain one makes so little sense in the context, which is fun. But I was like, they always say something about the blockchain now. And no, nobody really, 
knows what it is. Now, before you send me emails telling me I know what the blockchain is, yeah, I get it. It's a ledger that uses algorithms to, you know. But what? It, but what is it? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you're oh. explaining jargon to me with more jargon, I start to feel like I'm at a used car lot, and they know that if they just if they slap the hood and say, "Hey, this baby only has 130,000 miles on it, man. You, for 5,000 bucks, you're gonna easily get another 100,000 out of this." And I'm going to think to myself, "Hmm, this seems like bullshit. I don't know. Maybe I should just get a new car." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could see this as the basis of a beautiful, beautiful short film to go onto YouTube where we could really get you costumed and wardrobed up mm -hmm. as uh, a kind of, you know, one of these new company gurus. And you lay this on some new uh, prospective employees via Zoom interviews. And we just would cut to them nodding, yeah. you know, <laughs> nodding with, and but we could then caption it like, "What what are they really thinking?" And then, of course, they might actually have to explain what it is you said, mm -hmm. and there would be a a total meltdown, mm -hmm. you know. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, that would be fun. I love that, David. I think that might be. You've done some great work, but I think that might be your best, or at least your most complete response. I think yeah, today, yeah. I, I love that. Great. I feel like my brain is engaged today <laughs> in, in a way that it hasn't been. And it's all, I don't mean to keep harping on this Gene Wolfe series of books, but the power of literature, whether it's genre fiction or not, cannot be understated. It's, it's completely rearranging my brain. I'm having fun with words again. And... I mean, God damn it! I'm a writer. I'm supposed to have fun with words. And I was getting to the point where the last thing I wanted to see was more words, more words to yeah, say the same boy. I hear you. thing over and over and over again. But fuck all that. Writing is fun. Words are good. I'm back in. I'm back on team word. Well, I think that, you know, what, what you've just said about sort of the, the power of reading and, and investing. You did a beautiful thing last time of investing attention as opposed to paying right. attention. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of managing the oscillation between squatting in your garage with the kettlebells, the hard work, and the fun of being more mobile, more fluid, more able to keep up with Gus's demands. You know, mm. it's that movement backwards and forwards. Reading really does restructure the brain, but it takes some work. It is, it is kind of exercise at first, but what it makes possible, it returns, as we say, exponential possibilities and growth. Mm -hmm. And, but we can fall out of shape with it. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what that feeling is. And it, you think, oh, if I see another word or oh my God, I'm going to, I can't handle it. I've got to watch something on Netflix, yeah. you know, yeah. and then if you break that habit and think, well, no, I, the hell with that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm a word person, yeah. you know, so well, well done on that, I'm glad that's, that has obviously inspired you because you're, you're definitely firing, so Sweet. that's inspiring for us all. Excellent, do you have a tip for us today? I do, I do, and it may seem sort of in a very different register than what we've been talking about, but I don't think it is because I think it's about performance in the real world. I think it's about reconciling opposites, and I think it's about fluidity and flexibility. I was thinking about you know the apology is one of the great forms of communication of our time. Every day, someone's apologizing for something, or they're being asked or demanded that they apologize, or their apology wasn't enough. You know, and on it goes. Apology, if you track it uh, in terms of word uh, appearance in the media, I mean, it's just shooting through the roof, which is, I think, very, very odd. But it occurred to me that, you know, one of the problems with that is, is that really, of course, apologies are sometimes not sincere. We understand that sometimes they're motivated purely for self-interest, 
corporate apologies rarely, I think, get taken seriously, uh, and for good reason. But if we're honest in our own personal lives, I think that oftentimes we're not open enough to actually accepting an apology. You know, making an apology is very difficult, mm -hmm. and communicating that may be a real language art form. But a psychological art form is, is accepting someone's apology. And I had a nice experience uh, yesterday with a friend of mine who really is a great friend. And uh, we've known each other for, well, almost 10 years. And we have a lot in common. I have tremendous admiration for his, his intellect and, and his special fields of knowledge. But we had a pretty classic sort of ideological conflict of a kind that I think many of our listeners know about. It's, it's almost uh, the number one thing happening in social media. And maybe there were some things underlying it that, that weren't so ideological, that were more personal. But in any case, we caught up yesterday and he took me out for dinner and we didn't talk about, uh, you know, the, the incident which happened back in December. So it's been some time. Mm -hmm. But his presence, his reaching out, was not just a form of apology, but a, a real reconciliation, a moving forward, an example of true progress. And I really heard and felt that. And I was in that spirit too. And I think we need to allow for change in other people, particularly people we're close to, instead of always demanding change and, and changes in thinking and you know changes in consciousness, why don't we be a little bit more accepting of when change actually does happen? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think if we were a little bit more fluid and flexible, which is kind of the theme to this episode, I, I think we would live a much more fluid and flexible life. And I think we would open up possibilities of genuine connection with people and engagement on that performance sense of being able to play with people, being able to improvise with people, being able to build things together. Mm -hmm. And not in that jargon sense that David just did so beautifully of false teamwork and all of these corporate nonsense phrases for just being able to work efficiently with other people, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's my tip. Fantastic. And my dream doesn't make any sense to me either. But uh, I, I was, I think it's interesting you mentioned the, the heavy winds that we've both been experiencing. Mm -hmm, yeah. Because that's been a real feature of my uh, night times. Uh, the, the wind was really, you know, shaking things up last night and and yet I had three different you know fairly vivid dreams so I must have been falling back to sleep mm -hmm. but then being awakened uh, all of all of the dreams had a quality of, of extreme vividness mm -hmm. and absolutely no connection whatsoever to anything I've ever experienced or anything happening now mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's a factor of it but the, the sense of the wind uh, does permeate uh, the dreams, and, and this one particularly, the sense of conflict and surprise. And I'm not sure what the, the end thing is, but here it goes. I was in this kind of marketplace, and it's... it's the background is a kind of composite city that I've never really been in totally, but it's a mixture of, of parts of Sydney, Australia that I've never lived in, uh, the Middle East, hmm. and I don't know where else. It's a very, it doesn't feel American to me, um, but I couldn't pin it down anywhere in Europe either. Hmm. But it, 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 the general background repeats. It's one of my composite dream city places and I think people know when I'm talking about that you have something sort of like that but as I was wandering through this market area I entered a kind of more established sort of place that was almost inside big arcades and not just stalls that were you know kind of taken down each day but something more 
substantial with real a wood frame like a miniature theater mm -hmm. and quite a lovely uh, set of velvet curtains and so it was more sort of like interior and more enduring than what you might think of as an ongoing market and there was an Indian guy as an East Indian and he had on this countertop a really remarkable quite beautiful sort of steampunk designed box. Hmm. I couldn't tell if it was genuinely antique or just made to look like that. But I didn't know what it was. Was it a scientific instrument? Was it... I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And he started to demonstrate and there appeared to be a crystal coming out of it which as I looked more closely at it, I thought, no, this is kind of animal bone of some kind that's been sculpted. And it was placed into some sort of liquid, not water. And he would turn it, and it made a kind of music, somewhere between a very peculiar music box and a glass harmonica. I don't know if people know that sound, but it's very eerie. Benjamin Franklin uh, actually invented that. Very hard to play, very weird. And he was playing it, and this it was very, music without time signature. And I thought, oh, maybe this is some sort of strange Indian, Middle Eastern, North Africa. I didn't know. It was right. very right. odd. Right. And he said, would you like to, to try? Hmm. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, that's okay. So I go to kind of imitate him. I didn't know what else to do. Right? I had no idea what, what, how to work it or what right. it was. Mm -hmm. Well, I broke the thing. Mm. The bone broke off my hand. The whole thing just fell apart. And I just had this rush of just, you know, I was just mortified. I thought, oh my God, oh my God, this isn't good at all. And he just looked stunned. And I thought, oh my God. And then suddenly, another dude comes up. And I hadn't seen him, I hadn't seen them together at all. And he had this really awful little ceramic thing of, if you can imagine like Italian clown shoes from the 18th century, badly done, made out of ceramics. He had this, and he said, oh, you have to buy this now. That's the only way to make up for the damage that you've mm -hmm, done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, oh dear. Uh, and the price he quoted was just outrageous. You know, I can't remember what the currency was. It wasn't any real currency, but it was outrageous. Right. I thought, and I way beyond whatever I could pay. So without thinking, I instinctively just bolted. Yeah. And they both came running after me with these sabers or scimitars. And I, and I dashed into what was now quite a big mansion connected with the marketplace. And there was a big party going on. They were slashing at curtains and just causing all this wreckage. And I thought, my God, this has really escalated. They're going to kill me over this weird musical instrument. How did I get into this fix? And I had on a very distinctive red jacket, which I realized made me very easy to find. I, I, I rarely wear red. And I thought, oh, i got to get rid of that. So I checked it. And there was another jacket that was sort of a completely, kind of like an over, like a, a trench coat and sort of beigey cream. And it was lying over a chair and I picked that up and wrapped my, ran, and I turned around and went down the side exit and just thought, the only way to get away from them is to not run. And they were kept storming through the mansion with their, their swords, causing all this havoc. And I just disappeared back into the market crowd in this trench coat. And then the wind woke me up. It's not a one-to-one -one connection, but it your dream feels very much like the science fiction novel that I'm reading right now in a lot of kind of fascinating ways. There's a particular scene that takes place in a marketplace uh, where the hero is engaged in a horse race with another uh, exultant, right, a person of high breeding. And the horse race gets out of hand and he crashes into a tent that is occupied by a cult of people called the Pelerines who uh, worship 
this, uh, it's called the Claw of the Conciliator, and it's a glowing white uh, uh, jewel type thing that he, what, now when you uh, changed out of your red jacket, I thought if he puts on a black jacket and steals away, uh, because basically what happens in the book is our, is our hero uh, crashes into the altar and unbeknownst to him, his, um, his consort steals the claw and puts it into his bag. So he has it and these people are with scimitars are sort of after him. Um, no, not scimitars, actually, scythes, right? Uh, so again, right. again, not a one-to-one there. But, but very close. But, and he doesn't know that he's stolen it and that people are sort of after him for this. So there's the, the, the breaking of the altar versus the breaking of the instrument. Uh, there's been nothing in the book so far about the, this sort of magical bone-like stone emitting any kind of sound but i'll be interested to see if that pops up at some point in the narrative because even the way that you were telling it you know i was right back in the world of of earth with a u right earth um very interesting very (laughs) there's um my favorite my favorite sort of description of what a synchronicity is comes from Grant Morrison. He talks about how uh, if you think of, of a goal or a, of an end game as a drain uh, and you think of events as kind of swirling around in the whirlpool, the closer and closer you get to where you're supposed to be, the closer those swirling things become in this whirlpool. And I think your dream is a perfect example of that kind of again it's never quite it's never exact you know you're not saying i was in a horse race and then i crashed into an altar and my partner you know it's not that it just it has the flavor so distinctly and we've done dozens of dreams by this point and none of them were like that and I'm choosing this moment in time to read this book. People either get synchronicities or they don't. But they are, I'm telling you, so bizarre when they happen. Because you want to say, oh, that's that's just like this thing. And then you start talking about it and you're beginning to realize, well, that's not, that's not just like it. But man, close. Yeah, and they're almost, you know, these connections are almost stranger because... They're, they're just a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, and they make us think about things that mm-hmm. way because it's a resonance. Yeah, resonance. You know, exactly. It's vibrating on the same frequency, but not exactly the same notes, you know? Exactly. Yeah, well, you know, as we say, everything flows, but everything connects. That doesn't mean everything.